Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, Dr. Daniel H. Wilson has stepped into the interrogation room just to clear up a few things about his writing. Daniel's a Cherokee citizen and author of the New York Times bestselling Robo-Apocalypse and its sequel Robo-Genesis, as well as How to Survive a Robot Uprising, The Clockwork Dynasty, and Amped. He earned a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University, as well as master's degrees in machine learning and robotics. His latest novel is an authorized standalone sequel to Michael Crichton's classic The Andromeda Strain, which is entitled The Andromeda Evolution. Uh, Daniel, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thanks for making time to join me. Hey, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're already an incredibly accomplished author with your own acclaimed and beloved series, and I imagine this week has got to be an entirely new experience, though, for you with Andromeda Evolution coming out. Yeah, this has been really interesting. Uh, and I got to say, I had some trepidation leading up to mm -hmm. this book release, but so far, I have to say, it's been great. I've been so pleased. Now, I'm reading the Andromeda Evolution now, and this is an incredible story, Daniel. Uh, you've just hit it out of the park with this. Uh, I, I think you've done an exceptional job of putting this novel together with a new and original variant while still paying homage to Michael Crichton's original work. Uh, for readers who didn't realize you were making history this week and putting this book out, what, what do you want them to know about the Andromeda Evolution? Well, really just that uh, it, it picks up an adventure that Michael Crichton started in 1969 in the Andromeda Strain, which is, you know, just a, just a novel that created the genre in which I write, which is no big deal. the techno thriller. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Uh, a novel that I read and loved when I was a teenager. And, uh, and yeah, I had this amazing opportunity to take this world that, that Crichton built and uh, to build on the mythology, uh, to really tinker with it and play with all the parts and really carry on a new adventure set right now, um, just in time for the 50th anniversary. Yeah, I didn't realize until I saw your book coming out um, that this was the 50th anniversary, that original release. And so now I, I have to order a 50th anniversary edition of the Andromeda Strain because it, like you said, that really founded this entire genre. It truly is the godfather of, of all of us trying to write in this uh, in this space. Absolutely. This is the book that really kicked off Michael Crichton's career. So he had written a few books under other pen names while he was in medical school, but this is the one that had his name on it. This became mm -hmm. a bestseller, became a, a really beloved movie. And I'm, I'm really honestly shocked by how many people still love this movie, which is there's mm -hmm. not a lot of movies that have hung around as long as this one have that uh, no. people love so much. And uh, yeah, it's spun off into a mini series at a certain point and just really been around. But um, but it, it definitely created a world in which there were lots of stories to be told because I was like a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've, I've spoken with Mark Cameron, Mark Greeny and Mike Madden about getting the Tom Clancy call and Kyle Mills about getting the, the Vince Flynn call and Joshua Hood's coming on in uh, February to talk about, you know, getting the, the call to continue on the Robert Ludlum series. So I, I would really like to know what your experience was like when you got approached with this double-edged sword. Sure. So, you know, I uh, obviously have my own, I have a writing career. I'm a novelist. Mm -hmm. I've written bestsellers. I also write screenplays. I've written comic books for DC Comics. And I've adapted, uh, you know, screenplays for, you know, I adapted a 
Philip K. Dick novel called Now Wait for Last Year um, that's still in development for for his children for Electric Shepherd. Uh, So I had had, thankfully, experience Mm -hmm. beyond just being sort of the the king of my own castle. So when you write a novel, you know, you can do whatever you want. It's just, it's so wonderfully freeing. It's also a little bit isolating and scary, (laughs) but... But it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I love writing novels. I love putting my head down and just going into imag- my imagination for years. But I also know what it's like to, uh, to write Batman, you know, and to know mm-hmm. that this, this guy's been around since before I was here and he's going to be here after I'm gone and people are going to pick up. I'm just picking up these toys and playing with them and I'm going to put them back right. down. Um, and I've also collaborated on screenplays where, you know, the, I'm one voice among many. So what happened with this Crichton uh, novel was, you know, a friend of mine t- sent me an email and said, hey, I got this really weird request. Um, it, you know, would you be interested <laughs> in talking to the Crichton, to Crichton's son, which is the name, S-U-N, which is the name of mm-hmm. the uh, the estate. And so mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, of course. And so I went in and um, it turned out they had been looking for a really long time. For, uh, for an author who could come in and really honor Michael Crichton's legacy and mm-hmm. continue one of his stories. And in particular, they were thinking about the Andromeda strain. And uh, obviously, this was greatly exciting to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and I, I pitched my, uh, my version of how I think that story ought to go. And everybody really liked it. And it just, uh, the, the whole project just kept going from there step by step. I think of it like a highway with just an exit ramp every half mm-hmm. mile. I mean, there were so many places where Crichton's son could say, you know, it's not working out. Let's mm-hmm. just let this go. Yes. And this was a really personal project for Michael Crichton's wife, uh, Sherry Crichton. And so the stars really had to align. And what happened was we just stayed on the highway <laughs> all the way up through the end. And, and there were a lot of places where you know, this, this could have just ended, but it really didn't. And I, I mean, I had a, a great time uh, putting this novel together. Now, I read your online bio before I invited you to come on the podcast, so I already knew you were going to be the smartest guy in this particular room. But <laughs> in reading the Andromeda story, you've done such an incredible job of writing smart guy fiction. And <laughs> I, I loved your word choices, the vocabulary that, that you didn't try to spoon feed me as the reader, but somehow you still managed to make sure that I never felt lost and you wrote this at a level that a retired cop can feel smarter about himself for having read your work. Uh, How do you dial back the the science to make this kind of just the right spot that it's palatable for the typical thriller reader? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I let Michael Crichton set that, that level for me because I have had, you know, so far the reviews for this have been really great and I've been so thankful for that, but there have been a couple of people who say, Oh, it's too much jargon. I couldn't get through the beginning. Um, and the way I wrote this is I, I really make the book accelerate. So the chapters yep. get shorter, the action gets bigger, everything. The, there's less jargon as you move through it. Really, the jargon is about establishing this sense mm-hmm. of authenticity. So you really, yes. this is not, I'm not making this stuff up. This is real. You know, you're really there. And, and that's what Crichton did in the Andromeda strain. And you could say that he did too much of it, you know, but the fact is that was a huge bestseller. There's there's no way you're going to say anything about the Andromeda strain. So if somebody says, mm-hmm. hey, there's too much jargon for me to deal with in the first you know, 20 pages, I say, 
well, maybe you're not really a fan of Crichton, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, because that's kind of what you sign up for with this. Yes. And, yeah. You know, the thing that blew me away about it was, you know, I read the Andromeda Strain, of course. I read it again when it was time to, to, mm-hmm. to get going on this project. And I started looking up all the references and I discovered they'd all been made up. They were that they had all come from Crichton's imagination. So all That's of so the convincing. all of the quotations, all of the books, mm-hmm. all of the technical papers and the inventions and the Nobel Prizes, all of it was just completely made up. And and I realized like, okay, I've got a uh, I've got a big problem here <laughs> because yes. he wrote this before the internet. Um, no one could look this stuff up. Um, if you wanted <laughs> right. to check on his references, you were going to have mm-hmm. to get your behind into a, a library and get on that microfiche machine yeah. you know, <laughs> and get that thing going. The heck out of it, yeah. Yeah, you're gonna. You better have that Dewey Decimal System. So I realized, you know, I'm going to have to do this, and I'm going to have to do it with the internet. And so, uh, you know, I ended up really drawing a lot on real world. Um, acronyms, real-world domain experts, real-world spacecraft, spaceships, mm-hmm. uh, uh, space stations, <laughs> um, astro- astronomical phenomena—just everything. Really, I grounded it all into um, into into the real stuff. And so, therefore, a lot of my acronyms—if you look them up—well, they're really out there. You're going to find you're going to find lots of technical papers describing you know all the mm-hmm. stuff I'm talking about. And so. It, to that end, it is kind of nice because you are really learning something. You know, a sol- solar electric propulsion, that's a real thing, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, the heck, all this stuff is real, so. Now, I also really enjoyed your character development and the attention you put in detail of these characters and their backstories, their personalities, e- even down to the detail of uh, Hopper's old-fashioned letter opener. Uh, what, what is that part of your writing process like in making sure your characters feel and read as authentic people? Well, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time as a scientist. So I, uh, I was in graduate school at Carnegie Mellon and the Robotics Institute for seven years or so. I, I've worked as a scientist in the industry, and I know these people. Um, and mm-hmm. you know what's interesting is this is another place where I don't know. I've got people have been somewhat cynical about this. They say, "Well, in the first Andromeda strain, it was you know it was like five white men, and I think there was one white woman." And uh, and in mine, you know, I've got a team of scientists that are from everywhere. Yes. And they say, "Oh, it's been it's been updated for modern times." And I'm I'm like, I don't know where that's coming from. When I was a scientist, when I was a scientist, this is what it looks like. Yes. You don't walk into a lab these days and see five white guys. You no. walk into a lab and you see, you know, these people with amazing diverse backgrounds that yes. come from all over the world have, and this is one of the great things about science. It's not yeah. while you're down there, uh, you know, working all day. It's whenever you're, <laughs> it's whenever my friend Deepayon tried to eat a Christmas ornament off the tree. <laughs> I had to explain to him, no, some of them you can eat, some of them you can't. And he's like, this makes no sense, Daniel. Why would you have why would you have a candy cane next to this this delicious looking yes. silver ornament? <laughs> it's an imposter. Uh yes. you know, it, it's about it's about sharing culture and and yes. and this is one of my favorite my favorite memories of all my friends, you know, uh when, whenever I was a kid doing science. And so um, you know, this is these characters are people that I've known. They've uh They've got personalities that you'll find if you go into science. And, mm-hmm. and so I just did my best to draw on, on what I know 
Um, and I wasn't, you know, there was no cynical attempt to inject any kind of, you know, uh, certain number of people from here or from there. It was, it was just the real deal. Well, I, I think too, in, in terms of this being a modern novel, though, the world has become much smaller in the last 50 years. Mm, and yeah. from a technical and research standpoint, right, 50 years ago, America really was leading the pack. And now it feels even from inside our nation, like we're kind of struggling to keep up in some ways, in some aspects. And if you're going to have a multi or a, a team of the best experts available to combat a thing, yeah. it's not going to be five white guys anymore. So from I, America I, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, this is doing my research on this. I've been kind of as a, as a kid who raised in the, Bible Belt in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. you know, Pledge of Allegiance every day, mm -hmm. uh, kind of given certainly a, a different version of history than kids get these days. Nice. I, uh, I have been kind of coming to terms with this notion, you know, as, as an adult, like, hey, you know, my, uh, my country is only a couple hundred years old. <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. Gee, your yeah. country's five thousand years old. I mean, yes. okay. Well, there's no implicit value judgment there, but but it's it's an interesting fact, right? And yes. one thing that I picked up on that I hadn't really been aware of, because I did a lot of research on the International Space Station, is that you know that space station, that's Russian technology. I mean, the Russians really took the lead in terms of building manned. Uh, craft in permanent low earth orbit like they mm -hmm. uh they're the ones we're, we're lucky that we have the russians it's crazy because we always think of uh you know american technology as being so sophisticated and advanced there's one um there's one little fact that shows up in the book that i just loved um the, all the american modules on the international space station have mm -hmm. These, uh, they've got the life support run along the outside so that you can close the door if there's a loss of pressure, right? You just slam the door okay. shut and you cut that module off, just like in all the science fiction you've seen. makes a mm -hmm. lot of sense. Hundreds of millions of dollars to run the life support on the exterior of the, uh, of the ship. The Russians, they, have a, they run it through a hose that goes through the door and then they keep an ax next to the door. And if there's an emergency... <laughs> This is a real thing. If there's an emergency, they just oh. go, yeah, you know what? You just, you chop it and then you close the door. And there, yeah. there you go. We just saved a, like a quarter billion dollars. For a $19 <laughs> solution, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, that's really, that. I think that really speaks volumes. That's kind of the difference between uh, the American and Russian mm -hmm. approaches. And it gave me a lot of respect, honestly, for, you know, I can't really get behind the country, but mm -hmm. I can get behind the right. space program. Um, and that's one good, that's another really fascinating thing about the International Space Station is that if you, if you talk to the astronauts and even the people working on the ground, they really consider themselves citizens of the world. They look down on a big planet. It's really clear we all share it. Certainly. And, uh, and they have kind of a different outlook um, mm -hmm. from up there, which was really fun to tap into. Yeah, I think it would be really hard to be in that kind of environment where you are not just looking down on the entire global population but you're also up there by a real multinational consortium yeah and and really maintain an elitist attitude when no one is doing that on their own anymore no and you're and everybody up there their lives depend on each other so yes and you know once again it's yeah. also really doing research on the international space station i was lucky to have uh the, a lot of cooperation from nasa they took me out to the i i came out to the international space station mock-up 
uh, chambers where the where the astronauts practice before they go. And and uh, again, like I was saying about doing science on Earth mm-hmm. being so so culturally interesting. You know, they've got all the all the scientists up there on the space station have different food. They have different uh, cultures, cultural backgrounds, different mm-hmm. cultural mores, and like they, you know, they're constantly sharing uh, their, their perspectives and their food and, and their stories yeah, with each other. Fantastic. And it is, it is a really amazing sort of melting pot up there for them. Now, much like you discussed there, there being a highway with a number of exits, I've, I've wanted to take this interview in at least 18 different directions <laughs> yeah. since we've started. <laughs> There's so much that could talk about this novel. Um, but I, I, one of the things that I wanted to find out as a writer is your, the point of view that you've written this book in um, and whether that was a conscious choice that you made, if that was the story and characters, or if that's Michael Crichton 50 years later um, yeah. telling you how, how this is best done. I really, uh, you know, Michael Crichton is soaks through every page of this novel, you know, he's so a lot of the decisions I made thematically on mm-hmm. paralleling things that occurred in the first novel. And honestly, it's a, you don't have to read the first novel to really appreciate this one. Um, but if you do, you will go through and you'll, you'll start to find hundreds and hundreds of little references and little parallels. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I had a really great time with that. But the fact is, Michael Crichton has passed away. And uh, you, it's not possible for people to get a Michael Crichton novel anymore. So I, in order to give real truth to this and I had to have my own voice and I had to write uh, from my own perspective. And, and my perspective is uh, a kid from the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma who studied mm-hmm. a lot of robotics. You know? <laughs> so, so you'll find that there are a lot of robotics in this uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of NASA robotics in particular. Um, and you also find that there are, are a lot of there are indigenous characters, you know, and there are indigenous heroes mm-hmm. um, that they, that are that are scientist characters meet meet out there in the middle of the Amazonian. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, if you're really going to write a novel that's going to, I think, uh, have verisimilitude, have, have yes. authenticity, you know, uh, be true to the author, then, then you're going to have to have some fingerprints from the author. So this was a, uh, this kind of has both, you know, and, and I think it came out really well because I do think that Michael Crichton and I, um, you know, there are certain parallels in, in terms of just both of us having spent a lot of time learning about a technical field before we began mm-hmm. writing. And I think that comes through in both of our work. Now, I also have a semi-private obsession with artificial intelligence, robotics, <laughs> and the imminent intelligence explosion. Um, as a complete novice who knows nothing about it, so I'm basically just paranoid. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to dive into your uh, Robopocalypse and Robogenesis books this winter. What should readers know about those stories, and what inspired that series? Well, you know, that was inspired by coming out of the Robotics Institute, being surrounded by robots for years, and I wrote that one. That was my first novel. And I really just, I, I mean, I, the top experts in the world are at Carnegie Mellon. They're at Stanford and they're at MIT. But I had access to this, this incredible amount of knowledge. And mm-hmm. I decided I would write a novel that took the robot uprising, this intelligence explosion seriously, 
and describe the absolute most likely version of that. And amazingly, you know, to the, you know, robot uprisings are a pretty common trope, but amazingly, yes. you know, it really hadn't been done. There's no time travel. There's no uh, robot armies. This is really about our global technological infrastructure f completely failing and then trying to destroy us. And it was an awful lot of fun. And honestly, you know, what it ended up being was a lot of the characters are in the Osage Nation in central Oklahoma, <laughs> where oh, I grew fantastic. up. Um, and, and this is, you know, I wrote it pretty near some of these hurricane disasters where mm -hmm. it sort of became obvious that the federal government's not going to save you, you know, right away if there's a huge catastrophe. And the government is so big that it's a little bit unwieldy, you know. And so mm -hmm. yes. what I was aware of is that because of growing up where I did and, and pretty much anywhere in the United States or Canada, uh, there are a lot of these sovereign tribal governments that are around and they've got their own police. They've got their mm -hmm. own hospitals. They're fully functioning many governments. And if something really did go wrong, uh, I think they would be the last places where you'd find civilization. So there's a lot of characters that end up rallying around the Osage Nation in central Oklahoma. And it's about, it's about how far human beings will go to survive. And yes. uh, it's, it's a pretty fun book. <laughs> Hard to uh, pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm working on it. Oh. It, on that note, it's already come up a, a couple of times in the interview and in the the, uh, the, the introduction, but I, I also want to get some referrals from you selfishly. I <laughs> I grew up in, in New Mexico, and I, so I read a lot of Tony Horman, and our family kept, you know, prized Uray prints on the wall, but there, there aren't that many Native American stories and artists being promoted out in the public, and it's pretty rare that movies like uh, Wind River and, and Black Cloud get uh, the attention that those specific struggles still present America today deserve. And I wondered while we had this opportunity, um, if you could turn me and the listeners on to a few additional Native American artists, authors, or academics that you think deserve some credit and accolade that we could support. Sure. Um, so I think, uh, you know, Rebecca Roanhorse is really at the top of her game right now. She writes, um, she writes science fiction and she's won a lot of awards lately. Uh, so, you know, I would definitely say, I think she's got a new book called Storm of Locusts, but, and she's been writing for Star Wars now, but she's definitely yeah. someone to, uh, to check out. And then, you know, I would say that if you're, it is like, it's, so it's native month. <laughs> and so there, if you look online, you'll find a lot of, um, a lot of indigenous authors that are being um, talked about right now. Mm -hmm. I would say also though, just uh that it, no matter where you live in the United States, you know, look around and see who the local tribes are because they're, they're out there and they've got, you know, they've got artists um, that, that need to be supported just in your local area. Now, most aspiring authors start out writing what they know, and I expect that much of your, your studies and professional experience still find their way into your works. And especially with, you know, the Andromeda evolution, the story touches on such a diverse number of topics from economics and intergenerational discounting and microbiology, chemistry, and physics. And I wonder what topics you still actually have to go out and research and how much of this is from your own experience. Sure. Anything biological, man. That's my, <laughs> that's my weak spot. So I'm, I'm really, really on the technology side. All the, uh, you know, there's a character that travels with a swarm of uh, canary-sized drones, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, man, I, I mean, that stuff, I, I really didn't have to look too much of that up because I'm, I'm super excited about those things. I've been terrified by them and I yes. do a lot of research on them just because I'm interested. Um, but then you think about doing, um, you know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff Crichton was really good at, you know, the medical stuff, uh, that's outside my domain. So I had to ask, um, specialists, you know, to help me mm-hmm. get that kind of stuff right. So you know, you'll see that there's a, there's a push toward that. And, and it's also, you know, with, I wanted to have fun just as an author. I mean, it's my, mm-hmm. it's, it's me sitting down and writing every day. And, and uh, so not everything in this book is, is perfectly based on reality. It's not like I'm not throwing in a few curveballs just for fun. Right. Um, so, so if you looked every piece of it up, you wouldn't find a real world counterpart because that's kind of mundane, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so I throw in a lot of uh, a lot of just crazy stuff that I think would be neat, <laughs> and I just ground it on, um, you know, on on the real technology, and then uh, swing for the fences and have fun. Most writers I've come to know started out by getting a push from a mentor who recognized some talent in them. And I I wonder if you've had such a person in your life on the writing side and and how that relationship came about. You know, I had kind of a few, um, never anything that was like a, I've had a few people that were, that were mentors to me, but not necessarily in writing for me Mm -hmm. more. It was just, I had a few one-off experiences where someone I respected would say, Hey, you know, uh, you're actually pretty good at writing. And then they just move on. And then I just be left there with stars <laughs> in my eyes thinking, this is it. This is me. Yes. Yeah, this is something I can do. Um, so, you know, I had a science background. I never took writing courses. I never, uh, you know, learned, never took classes to learn how to write. I just read a lot, you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, you know, my high school English teacher he would read the the short science fiction stories I would write, um, and he would mark them up, and he would never really judge them too hard because they were pretty bad. And uh, I had a a couple of professors in in college, which I went to school at the University of Tulsa up the street from my house, who kind of gave me a little bit of a feedback every now and then, you know, saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know, you should look more into this. This is something you're good at." Uh, but you know, ultimately, you just have to kind of have I'm not sure if it's sort of a pathological level of ego, you know, mm-hmm. or just being too dumb to not march over the cliff, you know. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just always kind of, especially when I was younger, you know, I just kind of felt like uh, what I was doing was worth people reading, and um, and that confidence really took me. And again, it's just passion. I mean, I'm just super excited about this stuff. And so it's just sort of, I can't believe that other people wouldn't be excited too. Now, most writers are also pretty avid readers. So I wonder if you have a favorite fictional investigator or detective or PI that you've read in uh, in books or watch on TV or film. Hmm. Well, I mean, so there's obviously the... Uh, the um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Philip K. Dick the Blade Runners. Um, and that's something that I, I have kind of riffed off of, you know, um, in some of my own work. And then there's, you know, the, I've also riffed off of like just the Raymond Chandler stuff, like the mm-hmm. uh, hard boiled noir detective. I've got a story about a guy whose family is ripping itself to shreds over this inheritance that's been mm-hmm. locked up in an artificially intelligent executor who asks a riddle 
And so it's created these, uh, these wars where this guy's family kidnaps each other's babies all to get a chance to ask the question. And he's on the run with his, with his daughter who he's already tried to abandon. And he's just like a broken man. He's drinking the whole time. He's, he's got no family, but he's suddenly he's got to protect this little girl. And like, I mean, I just, I love that. I, what I love about it is, um, you know, I named my guy Philip Drake (laughs) and, what I loved about it is just that you've got a character who's um, not necessarily gonna um, go on that traditional arc and become mm-hmm. healed or become a good person. Um, and you get to just sort of play with that more realistic arc of, uh, you know, at a certain point in life, you kind of are who you are. Yes. And maybe you do something good, maybe you do something bad, but, you know, you're probably going to go right back to who you are. You still remain. Yeah. Now, what... With that last answer in mind, I ask this of all the authors who come on the show, this last question, Daniel, mostly because it's fun for me. And uh, God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you assign your own homicide? (laughs) Who's going to get my homicide? Let me think. I am, you know, I would go with, uh, okay, does it have to be a, a, like, Okay, it could just be an assassin or something. I think it's your, I would, it's your murder. You can pick anybody you want. Sure, I think I would. Uh, I would probably go with Bishop from Aliens. <laughs> now he's <laughs> now he's a machine, but he's relentless and he's yes. very uh, and he's willing to do anything you know for the humans that he cares about, including get ripped in half by a giant alien. <laughs> yes. He left yeah. spitting milk and whatever else out of his mouth. But you know, I think I'd put it in the hands of an android. You know, possibly the, well, it's up in the air, but uh, the character from the new Blade Runner film, um, who's mm-hmm. played by Ryan Gosling, I think. And I don't remember his name, but by the end, I'm not sure if it's clear whether he's a robot or not, but uh, I don't know if it matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that gets uh, those uh, two entities, I don't know if I can call them people, those two entities <laughs> up on the board for the uh, for their first votes, man. I, I really appreciate you spending time with us, Daniel. And where can readers connect with you and find uh, information on your upcoming works? Sure. I'm at danielhwilson.com. And you know, my email's there. If people want to email me, I usually answer. Um, not no big deal. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at Daniel Wilson PDX. Well, I greatly appreciate you making time. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, man. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. This episode's guest has been acclaimed bestseller, Dr. Daniel H. Wilson. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.